Our scripture passage for this morning comes to us from the book of Esther, and we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. And so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. We're continuing our series in Esther this morning, and if you'll remember, uh, in chapter 7, Haman was finally hanged. Uh, He's been plotting to kill all the Jews, and finally, that enemy has been vanquished. And so we read about what happens next here in chapter 8. So Esther chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, hear now the word of God. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown 
and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Most gracious Father, we rejoice this morning that we have a book that we call Scripture. And that in this book there are many other smaller books. And we thank you this morning for this book of Esther. We pray, Lord, that you would work its teachings deep within our hearts this morning and that you'd accomplish what you want to do through your word, by the power of your spirit. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I have been lately reading through uh, the New Testament, I have been paying uh, particular attention to the way that the New Testament authors deal with the Old Testament. And I think that for, you know, for generally speaking, for us, you know, just normal Christians, right, we, when we think about the way that Jesus appears in the Old Testament, and if I were to come up to you and say, hey, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? I think probably the first thing we would think of are the prophecies in Isaiah about Jesus, right? You know, the lamb led to the slaughter and, and the suffering servant and all of that. Uh, we know well that Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament. Right? That's, that's pretty second nature to us, I think. You know, uh, Matthew, the gospel writer, uh, he certainly sees Jesus in the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's perfectly valid. But you know what's interesting is if you pay attention to the way that the New Testament authors interact with the Old Testament, when they're looking for Jesus, when they're looking for the gospel, they don't just appeal to direct prophecies about Jesus. Now see, the New Testament authors have a much more profound way of dealing with the Old Testament than I think that many of us do oftentimes. And the way that the Old Testament authors, or excuse me, the way that the New Testament authors deal with the Old Testament is they look deep. For example, if you read Paul in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 10, when he's talking about the Exodus event, Israel being led out of bondage in Egypt, you remember that one of the things that God did, amazing sign through Moses, is he parted the Red Sea. Parted the waters, they walked through on dry, dry land. Well, when Paul thinks back on that event, he says that Israel underwent a baptism when they went through the Red Sea. And then he says when they got out on the other side of that baptism in the Red Sea, they drank from the rock. Namely, the rock that, that Moses struck, you know, and the water comes out. And he says, this is Paul speaking, he says that that rock was Christ. Now, he's not saying 
that Jesus reincarnated himself as a rock or that he you know, pre-incarnated before he became man. He was a rock in, in Israel, nothing like that. But what Paul is doing is he's talking about typology. He's talking about the fact that there are in the Old Testament stories and historical accounts and figures and all of these things that point forward to Christ because they are patterns. They're patterned after Christ. And they're patterned after Christ in various ways. We talk about David being a type of Christ, right? being king of Israel. And it fits that pattern, just like Jesus is king of his people. And so what the New Testament authors are always doing in Scripture is they are looking for types of Christ. They are looking for patterns of the gospel. Now, that has a profound impact on the way you read the Old Testament, doesn't it? Because if you, if you want to learn how to interpret the Old Testament, I can think of no better way than to go and look at how the apostles of Jesus Christ were interpreting the Old Testament. Or how Jesus himself looked for himself on every page of the Old Testament. And in this book of Esther, this is no exception. You've heard me talk about Esther being a type of Christ before. Well, in chapter 8 of the book of Esther, which we are going to look at this morning, we see not only a type of Christ, but even more grandly, we see a type of the gospel of Christ. And we're going to see that as this text unfolds, okay? Because the first thing we've got in our text here is the problem. And we'll talk about what that problem is, but the second thing is the solution to the problem. And then the third thing is the inheritance, okay? So problem, solution, inheritance. And in all of this, we see a presentation of the gospel of Christ, okay? And I wanna show that to you this morning. So let's look now at first the problem, all right? You remember I mentioned just a moment ago as I was introducing Uh, the scriptural text, um, we noted that right at the end of chapter 7, we have Haman, the enemy of the Jews, finally being vanquished. He's been the bad guy in this account. He's been scheming to try to destroy all of God's people, and finally, he gets hanged. Kind of gruesome, but in, in some sense, as we're reading the story, it's somewhat satisfying to see an enemy get vanquished. And so that's what happens here, is Haman gets vanquished. Now, As we've been talking about throughout this series, the the conflict between Haman and the Jews, or really Haman and Mordecai in particular, is not based upon jealousy or not based on some kind of petty reason or something, but rather the conflict between Mordecai and Haman is rooted all the way back in Israel's early history because Haman is a descendant of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were under the curse of God. King Saul was supposed to wipe out all of the Amalekites, and he disobeyed. And so Haman now, showing up hundreds of years later, is a testimony to Israel's disobedience. And so Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman because Haman then would have won the spiritual battle. It would have been the enemies of God winning against God's people. And so Mordecai rightly doesn't bow down to Haman for that reason. And so throughout this book, there's this constant spiritual battle between Mordecai and Haman. And finally now, at the end of chapter 7, Haman is vanquished. And notice in verse 1 what happens. As soon as he is killed, on that day, verse 1, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman. 
This is not just a, a nice little historical fact for detail. This is an important symbolic event. Because what do you do when you win a war in the ancient world? <laughs> you take the enemy's stuff. Right? Now, Israel uh, was commanded not to take enemy's stuff in some situations when they were conquering Canaan. But other enemies, they were allowed to take their stuff. And so here, symbolically, what's being shown is that Mordecai and the Jews have won the war against Haman. The seed of the woman has conquered the seed of the serpent. And now they have taken possession of the inheritance of the evil one. They've got it. They won the battle. It's not a minor detail here. This is a statement that they have won. But here's the problem. They have, they're not entirely out of the woods yet. The Jews aren't. Not because there's still a problem here. And Esther knows about this problem. So in verse 3, she comes and she appeals to the king. Uh, and she appeals to them and she says in verse 6, For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Now, I mean, Haman's just gotten killed, right? He's been the mastermind behind the evil plan to wipe out all the Jews. Oh, what's Esther talking about here? Well, what she's, what she's concerned about is the fact that, yes, Haman is dead. The enemy of the Jews is dead. However... That doesn't change anything about the edict that Haman signed into effect. Remember, the edict says, that Haman was putting together back in chapter 3, the edict says that on a specific day of the month, all of the Jews are going to be slaughtered. The whole people group, gone, in the kingdom of Persia. That's the edict. And remember, the king had given Haman the signet ring so that Haman could sign that law into effect. And a law signed into effect with the king's signet ring cannot be reversed. It is final, regardless of whether the guy who actually stamped it dies or not. So Haman gets vanquished here, but the Jews are not out of the woods. They've got problems still because they're still all going to be slaughtered. And so what Esther does is she very tactfully comes before the king and she says, King, if the matter is acceptable to you and if I am acceptable to you. In other words, you know, if, this, if it seems like a good idea to you and if you really love me, then we need to do something about this. Please reverse the edict. I mean, talk about guilt tripping from a wife here. That's, that's what she's doing. If you love me, you'll do this, honey. Uh, and that's what's going on. And so she's tactful in her approach. She comes to the king. Please do something. The problem is, and she knows this, the problem is the edict cannot be reversed. And so basically the king says, look, you know, I, I killed Haman for you. I gave you all of his stuff. I don't know what else can be done. But here's my signet ring. Do whatever you want, whatever you think is best. You talk about the profound trust here that the king has for Esther and for Mordecai, especially considering that Haman, who previously had that same privilege of being given the ring, and now he's giving it to Mordecai immediately after it didn't work the first time. This is the text doing a kind of ironic reversal here. Whereas the king gave all the power to Haman, Haman abused it and got executed for it. Now the king is giving that same exact power to Mordecai. 
profound reversal here showing that Mordecai has not only come into possession of all of Haman's stuff as a matter of winning the war, but he's coming into possession of everything that Haman had in terms of his power. Now Mordecai is second in command. God's people have won that battle with the enemy of the Jews. That's what's being described here. So that's the problem. There's nothing that can be done. The edict is final. The king says, I don't know what to do. Here's my ring. You figure out something. And so that brings us now to the solution. Here's the solution. Verse 8. Excuse me, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. And then skip down to verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. So Mordecai exercises some brilliance here in this solution. Problem is, the edict to kill all the Jews can't be reversed. Mordecai says, all right, scribes, come together. Let's create another edict. Let's come up with another solution. We can't reverse the edict because that just it's against the laws of the Persians. So let's make another one. And in this one, we will give the Jews in the kingdom of Persia the right from the government to defend themselves. Now that's important because previously, without the second edict, the Jews would not have the right under the government to defend themselves. Now they might try to defend themselves, but it wouldn't do any good because ultimately the government would be against them. They would die eventually. But now with this new edict, the government says, not, we're not going to execute the Jews and we're giving the Jews the right to defend themselves. So if anyone does try to come and kill them, they have government condolence to arm themselves and fight back. And that's Mordecai's brilliant solution here. Now, just taking a step back for a second, uh, one of the things that I've pointed out as we've gone through the book of Esther is that Esther and Daniel are very, very and suspiciously similar to each other in terms of their stories, in terms of the historical account. I mean, I brought this up before, but I want to bring it up again because I think it's important. Both Esther and Daniel, if you compare the two of them, they're both living in a pagan world. Esther in Persia, Daniel in Babylon. So they're both living in pagan cultures. They're both being assimilated into the culture in the sense that they're being educated that way. They're learning the language. And indeed, both Daniel and Esther have Hebrew names and pagan names. Daniel, his name Daniel is the Hebrew name, but then his pagan name was Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name. Esther has her Hebrew name, Hadassah, but her pagan name is Esther. And one of the things that is distinctive between the account of Daniel and the account of Esther is that while Daniel is in Babylon being educated by the Babylonians, nonetheless, the text always refers to him using his Hebrew name. Whereas for Esther, 
The text only mentions her Hebrew name once, but always refers to her with her pagan name. And the reason for that is because Daniel never assimilates into the culture himself. Daniel always remains pure. Daniel is always faithful. But as we've already seen earlier in the series, Esther was not. Names mean something in Scripture. They hint at the person, at the character of the person. And so there's some similarities there between Daniel and Esther, but that's not all. Daniel and Esther, as they proceed in this pagan world, both ascend to great prominent positions within the empire. Daniel does. Becomes one of the great wise men of Nebuchadnezzar. Esther uh, becomes queen. Now, an important difference between the two is Daniel becomes uh, uh, so great because God blessed him of being faithful and not conforming to the culture. Esther gets to her position by sleeping with her boss. Okay? There's a big difference there. But then another similarity after that is that both Daniel and Esther are put in jeopardy. Both of their lives are brought into peril by a rash decree of the king. You go back to Daniel for a second. Uh, Daniel, being faithful, he's praying every morning. The wise men of King Darius, they say, Daniel, look man, we don't like this guy because he's getting way too much attention from the king. So let's, let's uh, convince the king to make an edict that says that if Daniel prays to anyone but Darius, then we'll throw him in the lion's den. And Darius doesn't know that this is what's happening, but he's like, yeah, I'll sign the edict. Sounds great. Stamps it into approval. And what happens? Daniel's in trouble. And he gets thrown in the lion's den. Edict cannot be reversed. Darius, try as he might, researching as he might all night long, he could not reverse the edict because a law of the Persian Empire is final. Same thing with Esther here. A rash decree, the king not paying attention, his right-hand men suggest he makes a law, he signs it into effect without really thinking about it, and that causes God's people to be in trouble. You see, this is the same basic story between Daniel and Esther here. And one of the key distinctions between Daniel and Esther that now comes about is that although God provides salvation for his people in both cases, both for Daniel and for Esther and the Jews, He does it in different ways. In the book of Daniel, when God provides salvation for Daniel, what does he do? Daniel's in the lion's den. God sends an angel into the lion's den to bind the mouths of the lions. In other words, God saves Daniel supernaturally. He uses the supernatural power to do it. Whereas when you come to Esther, God also is going to save his people from this rash decree of a king. But here he's not going to do it with supernatural power. He's going to do it with ordinary people like Mordecai. He's going to do it through ordinary means, natural means. And the reason for this is because I think Daniel and Esther are meant to be interpreted together. They actually are right next to each other in the Hebrew Bible, in the order of those books. And Daniel is meant to be the ideal for how to live in a pagan world. 
Daniel is meant to show this is how the righteous man lives in a pagan world. He, he doesn't slip up. He does what he's supposed to do. God blesses him. God saves him. It's the ideal account of how to be a Christian in an unbelieving world. But when you come to the book of Esther, Esther is far from the ideal. Rather, Esther is the realistic account of how a believer lives in a pagan world. Because ideally, we would love if we could live among unbelievers and never assimilate, and we're always following God like Daniel. But in the account of Esther, we actually see a sinner. We see a miserable sinner who loves the world. And yet when it, when it really counts, she comes forth trusting in God on behalf of her people. And God works through Esther and through Mordecai to deliver his people in an ordinary way. Esther is the realistic account, if you will, of sinners in an unbelieving world. And that is a profound lesson for us that I brought out last time we were together. And I want to bring it out more here now this morning, too. In that when we want God to deliver us, or when we want God to save us, or when we want God to be involved in our life in some way, we often are wanting God to to come in with guns blazing and supernatural power and miracles and all of these amazing things. God, part the Red Sea. God, do this. God, do that. That's what we think we should want. And God does do that. It's great when he does that. He's powerful. He's not bound by natural law. He can do what he wants. He can work miracles if he wants. But God's normal way of operating, his normal way of working out his providence in your life and in my life is not by doing great, supernatural, amazing things. His normal way of operating is exactly the way he operates in Esther. He operates as the silent, sovereign one who uses ordinary people. I love, in the book of Zechariah, we are told not to think less of small things. Not to think less of the small, ordinary things that God does. When God wants to raise good Christian men and women. Can he do it with some miraculous conversion experience? Absolutely he can. And he does do that. That might be one of, that might be your story. But you know what God likes to do oftentimes? Is he likes to work through families. When God wants to raise great Christian men and women, he loves to work through ordinary families where the children are grow up in a Christian home, baptized in a good church. They grow up, they learn the word of God, and so they can say that their entire life they never knew a time when they didn't know the Lord. That's not as grand. Right? That's not as amazing or eye-popping or, or you know, dazzling as we might like. But God likes to work through ordinary means. He likes to work through you. Esther's the realistic account of sinners being used by God in an ordinary, natural way. And that is a good thing. And so that's the problem here. And then we have the solution. How God brings salvation through ordinary people. People you wouldn't expect. Just like he brings to us eternal salvation through a carpenter from Nazareth whom we would not expect. But that leads us then now to the third and final piece of this section. 
And that is that we have an inheritance. Look at uh, verse 15. This is a beautiful few verses. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. And the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. In other words, the people were seeing that in this ordinary, ordinary event, they could see the power of God. They recognized it. And many of the pagans were becoming followers of the one true God. Fear of the Jews here, I don't think, should be understood as, as they were afraid in the sense of terrified. But rather fear in terms of respect and adoration, like the fear of the Lord. So many people were coming to faith in the one true God by seeing God working in this ordinary way. And Mordecai now comes out in robes of royal splendor. Mordecai comes out in robes. See, earlier in the text, not in chapter 8, but earlier in, in Esther, we saw Haman who had to lead Mordecai around the town for an afternoon. Mordecai dressed up in royal robes and a crown. Remember that? Uh, Haman had to do that. That was a great precursor. The destruction of Haman's pride, which came right before the actual destruction of Haman's life. But what that event also was, as Haman had to honor Mordecai in the royal robes, it was not just a precursor of Haman's destruction, but it was a precursor of Mordecai's exaltation. Because Mordecai, in that event, when Haman led him around, got to wear those royal robes and that crown for a short time. But then it was over. But now, here at the end, he gets those robes and he gets that crown permanently. That is his position now. A second in command of the empire. Now, robes and clothing in the scriptures are much more important than we think of them today. We think of just, you know, putting on clothes as just something to cover us and maybe look fashionable. Right? At least for some of us, that's the case. Some of us just want to get something on. But in the, in the scriptures, clothing is far more symbolic than we give it credit for. For example, in, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit in the garden, right? They sin against God and they hide, they're ashamed. What is the very first thing that God does for them? When he finds them, he makes fig leaves for them. Fig leaf clothing. And he clothes them. Why? Because when they sinned, they disinherited themselves from God. They disinherited themselves from the eternal blessing that they would have had, had they obeyed the covenant of works. But then by grace, God re-inherits them into his family. When Joseph's brothers came along, right, they were jealous of Joseph. What did they do? They took his coat of many colors, right? disinheriting him. What did Joseph do when he saw his brothers and he met them and told them who he was years later in Egypt when he was second in command of the whole Egyptian empire? He forgave them, and then the text says he clothed them, saying that even though they were so wicked, they nonetheless would still receive their inheritance from their father. 
and they would become the 12 tribes of Israel. In the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus tells, the son gets his inheritance from his father, runs away to a foreign land, spends it all on prostitutes. Then he comes back, pleading with his father simply to become a servant in his repentance. What does the father do there? He clothes him, saying, you will receive your inheritance. You are still my son. See, clothing in the ancient world marks a whole lot more than simply clothes. It marks inheritance. And this is where we begin to see the gospel presentation here in this passage. The problem. Judgment is coming upon God's people. The solution. God provides salvation. What is the result? An inheritance. Calvin talks about this in his Institutes, and I love what he says. He says that we as believers have been vestitus and conspectu dei. We have been clothed with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ in the whole sight of God. You see, the gospel not only contains the promise that our sins were forgiven on Calvary, Not only that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for us, but the gospel also contains the promise that we also receive, credited to our account, the perfect righteousness that Jesus merited on this planet in his perfect righteous life. See, we not only need Christ to forgive our sins, but we need his perfect righteousness. And Paul and Zechariah talk about this Righteousness of Christ as garments and robes, white, that cover us. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see the filthy excrement of the robes of the high priest in Zechariah 3. But rather, what God sees when he looks at us as believers is he sees the righteous robes of his son, Jesus Christ. Those righteous blue and white robes. See, when we talk about the gospel, we receive the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is on that basis that we are justified. Not on the basis of anything wrought in us, the confession says. But solely on the basis of the work of our Lord Jesus. Folks, that is the gospel. We are justified on the work of Christ and not on the basis of ours. We were once sinners. Judgment on the way. And yet God provided salvation. And he clothed us in the righteous robes of the inheritance that we have in our Lord Jesus. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we rejoice this morning in your gospel. God, often when we think about the gospel, all we have in mind is the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, that is important. We love the sacrificial lamb led to the slaughter, our Lord Jesus, on Calvary. Lord, we need that sacrificial payment for sins. But we also need his perfect righteousness imputed to us. And Lord, we pray that you would work that truth more deeply in us and that we would recognize that we are not justified on the basis of anything wrought in us. 
at all, but solely on the basis of the work of our Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this great gospel truth and that we can trust in him for our eternal salvation. We thank you for that, God. And we pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is number 295, Crown Him with Many Crowns, number 295. Please stand as we sing together.